0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Middle East Studies. I'm James Dorsey, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Jonathan Fulton about his new book, China's Relations with the Gulf Monarchies. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thanks, James. Happy to be here. I wonder if you could start by sort of telling us a bit of, if you wish, an intellectual history of yourself and how you came to writing this book. Sure, it's kind of a long and
1: twisted tale, I guess, like most books like this. But um, yeah, I grew up in Atlantic Canada in a very small farming town called Sussex, New Brunswick. There's very little to do with either the Gulf monarchies or China. Um, I graduated with a degree in political science, and I was really curious about the world. I wanted to travel and and, uh, get out and explore a bit. So my then girlfriend and now wife and I ended up in Taiwan, um, knowing nothing about Chinese culture, language, Taiwanese history, really very little about it at all, and um, we were teaching English there for for a couple of years in our early twenties and it was great We, we um, really got fascinated by the language and the culture and the history, and, and started to delve deeper into it and um, kind of got the the uh, taste for East Asia. We lived in Korea as well for quite a while, and we ended up moving to Abu Dhabi in two thousand and six, and we thought we were only going to be here for a very short. You know, maybe a, a two or three-year contract, just to see a different part of the world. At that point, I decided I wanted to go into an academic career, and I was doing a master's thesis on China's energy relations. I was really um, curious about how its energy requirements were shaping its foreign policy, and I was also very interested in this uh, Shanghai Cooperation Organization at the time. And I thought that was going to be the direction of my my studies was China Central Asia, and Kind of by a strange coincidence, the deeper I got into my research, the more I realized I actually lived at kind of ground zero of where I needed to be studying. You know that that China's relations with the Gulf were much greater than I realized. You know, even living here, I had always, I guess, like many people back in the late 2000s, considered the Gulf to be oriented towards the West and hadn't really given it much thought, but. The more I started reading about it and learning about it, I realized that this relationship between China and, and the Gulf states is going to be pretty important. So, um, yeah, that's when I, I put my Ph.D. application together and, and thought I'd research China-Gulf relations. And uh, I guess when I wrapped that up, I, I immediately got into the task of turning it into a book, which which came together last year.
0: Right. In many ways, of course, um, there were a bunch of factors which you probably since knows, almost certainly having been in the Gulf now for more than a decade, have witnessed there have been a number of factors that have, in a a sense, changed your perception, but also reality on the ground, in terms of the orientation of Gulf states exclusively on the United States, and their turn eastwards, among others, towards China.
1: Absolutely. Um, I think that was the interesting thing, because I'm a political scientist, I do international relations and a lot of the studies that I'd read, I mean that was when I started this project, that was one of the harder things was just finding current data and current studies because there had been a lot of stuff published still in that kind of Cold War era. And a lot of the um analysis kind of looked at it from a, a structural or systemic pressure kind of orientation that the Gulf states were focused in one direction because of systemic pressures, and it had less to do with what was happening inside the countries. And the same thing with China, that it was more focused on East Asia, and and it seemed kind of opportunistic, let's get the energy. Um, And of course, in the past 20 years or so, we've seen more and more um, factors coming into play that the, the international system pressures, like the the what's happening in the U.S. and the, the Arab uprisings and nine eleven, um, the changes in energy markets, um, China's Belt and Road. I mean, there's just so many factors that come into play, um, and then you add those together with all the things that are happening domestically within the Gulf states and China, and and uh, you know the new normal in the Chinese economy and and uh, Gulf states trying to to move to this post-Rentier system, there's just so much happening that, that make it a, a really interesting set of relationships to, to study and analyze. I mean, you describe
0: a lot of this in your book and fundamentally China's relations with the Gulf states have become far more complex and multi-layered. You have now hundreds of thousands of Chinese nationals and thousands of chi- Chinese companies operating in the region. What are the implications of all of these expanding relationships?
1: Oh, wow. Well, there's just, there's so much to consider. I mean, on the one hand, um, I think it's pretty obvious that the the relationships, you know, kind of an international relations perspective, the relationships with the U.S., uh, it's rocky, but the security architecture that America has in the region isn't going away. I think U.S. military preponderance is going to be a fact here for quite a while. Um, In terms of just the, the, the Gulf states wanting to diversify and look to different states, um, China's becoming a, a big one. The Belt and Road is, is, is expanding China's interests and, and influence in a lot of regions where it's, it hasn't been traditionally. And uh, the Gulf is, is a natural fit for a lot of what they're doing.
0: You've uh, used the term a dense interdependence. And so how important is the Belt and Road and if it's important, why is the Arab Gulf not included in the corridors that sort of constitute the the initiative's uh, backbone, if you wish? It seems to me, and it seems to me that the absence of a corridor is remarkable, given that the Gulf is at the crossroads of Africa, Asia, and Europe, and the region's hydrocarbon reserves.
1: Yeah, that's a really great point, and it's something I've talked to Chinese. Um, analysts and academics and officials about. Um, And I think there's quite a bit at play there as well. And, And the big one is, well, first of all, in terms of the economic corridors, those were announced, I think, in 2015. And that was kind of the architecture of the Belt and Road. And as you say, there was no corridor developed on the Arabian Peninsula. And that was quite shocking to me because you see them, there's the the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor and the China-Central West Asia that forks off into Iran and Turkey, and this is such a hub where they already had such dense layers of relations across almost every facet of the Belt and Road cooperation priorities. You know, for the the Belt and Road, they they want to focus on uh, these five cooperation priorities of policy coordination, facilities interconnectivity, uh, financial integration. Um, free trade and people-to-people bonds, and this is really the blueprint they followed for developing relations with the the Gulf monarchies, um, right across the board. They've they've been doing this for quite a while. Um, there is no security component to this these uh, cooperation priorities. Uh, it's really all about development and and, and uh, economic issues. Um, so it, it was very strange to me when I saw these corridors and thought, well, this is exactly the form they're using to develop. Or, or enhance relations with the GCC states. Why is there no formal corridor? Um, and in my discussions with people, uh, one of the issues that came up was that this was all announced back in 2013, and most Arab states were, you know, were obviously very preoccupied with uh, regional events. The Arab uprisings were, were taking a lot of their energy and, and resources. And um, speaking with some Chinese officials, they they kind of indicated that they were they had come to the GCC states and and, and proposed this idea, and they were a little uh, hesitant given the fact that they were just focused almost exclusively on on regional affairs at the time. Um, oh, I've also sorry, so, no, go ahead, please, please. No, well, and I also spoke with a Chinese diplomat who's uh, in the Gulf, and I asked him about this and said, this is so strange that uh, these relationships are so intense across a, a wide range of Belt and Road-oriented endeavors. Why is there no corridor? And he said, we don't need it. You know, Any type of bilateral cooperation is Belt and Road cooperation. So whether or not it fits into the formal um, structure of the BRI is, is less important than the fact that they're just really taking whatever they do together and calling it Belt and Road uh, Cooperation Project.
0: It it also seems to me strange, not only because there's an absence of a corridor, and that seemed to be the architecture, but also because various Gulf states, particularly the United Arab Emirates and uh, and Qatar, have really positioned themselves in terms of ports, in terms of airlines, as global hubs, in which Asia, and particularly China, plays an an increasingly important role.
1: Absolutely. And I think what we're seeing um, in the UAE, I think in particular, uh, they've they've been elevating relationships. You know, China doesn't use an alliance system the way the U.S. does. They use these strategic partnerships. And um, it's a hierarchy of relations. And until now, the, the Iran, Saudi, and the UAE have all been given the highest, this comprehensive strategic partnership. Um, status, and that involves a wide range of economic and political and security cooperation. Um, so those seem to be the three pillars of China's uh, Persian Gulf or, or Gulf orientation. But Qatar is is, a, is an important one as well. They're at the next level down in Sozoman and Kuwait. Um, Bahrain, I think, is the only Gulf state that doesn't have uh, an agreement yet. But Qatar, it's is interesting because, as as you say, they've been doing a lot of infrastructure development for the FIFA World Cup. Um, They've been, you know, just a a tremendous amount of uh, infrastructure going on. Um, Chinese firms have taken a big role in this. They signed something like $8 billion in in contracts in 2014 alone. Um, So, yeah, these ports, these airlines um, are are really a a big part of what China seems to be doing on the peninsula.
0: We'll come back to sort of the balancing of relationships between all of these Mm -hmm. states uh, and what that means for China. But let's start with, you You know, you've described in the book the weakening and possible demise of the, the Gulf Cooperation Council or the GCC, primarily as a result of the um, now almost 20-month-old crisis in the Gulf in which Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates have declared an economic and political uh, and, uh, and diplomatic boycott of Qatar. You've described that basically as a problem for China. Uh, can you explain why that's a problem for China and whether that in itself is also going to make a, a possible future uh, creation of a corridor more unlikely?
1: Sure. I mean, it's it's a problem for China on a couple of levels. On, on a very practical level, um, China has a preference for bilateral relations, but... And with the Gulf, they've been negotiating a multilateral agreement, uh, a free trade agreement with the GCC oh, forever now at this point. I think they started back in 2004. And there was about a two year period from 2004 to 2006, excuse me, where, where there was quite a lot of energy put into this, and then it, it just kind of fizzled. And when President Xi Jinping went to Saudi and in iran in 2016 for his first middle state visit as as a president uh this was one of the key takeaways that he said he wanted within by the end of the year he wanted to see this free trade agreement um revived and and in some positive momentum towards it and they held i think six rounds of talks throughout 2016 and it they weren't quite there yet but it was pretty close um closer certainly than they'd ever been at at that point before and with this um I guess breaking of the g c c or what looks like the breaking of the GCC. I c c i don't know how you construct a multilateral agreement with the broken uh organization, so that certainly is, is an issue I think that that uh weighs down on China and the region. Um, the other one is just China prefers stability you know as most great powers would they don't want to see um, a, a problem between you know port partners they've got very strong um Obviously, the trade relations between China, or economic relations between China, Saudi, and the UAE, are are much much greater. But Qatar is also considered a pretty important partner. They get a lot of natural gas from Qatar, and they've they've last year signed an agreement to to uh, ratchet that up quite a bit. I think it was a twenty year agreement. Um, so they don't really want to see a, a problem between you know states that they have pretty important relations with. Um, they've been quiet behind the scenes. I think you know uh, Foreign Minister Wang Yi had uh, talked about playing a mediator role and, and saying you want to see a diplomatic solution. Um, but I think it's really out of anybody's hands. It seems to be the Gulf states have to have to solve this, this themselves. Um, if, if I guess that's the takeaway from the past 20 months or so. And uh, I think China just wants to position itself so that it's uh, not stuck on either side, but able to kind of keep a foot on, on both sides of this dispute.
0: It also strikes me that, you know, in many ways, China is totally aligned with the rest of the international community, which basically wants to see the Gulf crisis go away. And you could argue, in practical terms, has adopted the gallery position by by calling for negotiations, um, you know, to end this crisis and run up against basically the Saudi. And the UAE refusal to even entertain a negotiation without their conditions having been met. Which leads me to a more fundamental question, which is whether Chinese policy in the region is sustainable. You mentioned the um, January 2016 visit by Xi Jinping to the Middle East, including to Saudi Arabia. Uh, and, and that right before the, uh, that visit, they, China sort of articulated its first ever uh, uh, first Middle East policy policy towards the Arab world in a very long time, and that really was just a reiteration of long standing China Chinese policy with little uh, accommodation of the realities of what's going on in the region.
1: Sure, um, I think that's a really interesting angle to look at this because I'm actually writing a paper uh, I've been working on it this weekend, looking at that very question. Uh, one of the questions I constantly am asked at conferences and, and media engagements is, you know, how long can China sit on the fence? You know, eventually, it's going to have to choose, is it on the Arab side of the Gulf or the Iranian side of the Gulf? Um, In such a, a, a tense uh, regional security complex where there's a lot of competition, um, and a lot of mistrust for any great power to to cultivate relations on both sides seems um, i don 't know maybe untenable and when my my take from from reading a lot of uh, statements and documents from from the Chinese government and Chinese academics and officials is um, they don 't really have a problem with this ambiguity of of, of this set of relations uh, I think a lot of Western countries, particularly the u s uh, sees it in a very, you know, kind of uh, you're, you're with us or you're with them situation. Uh, their alliance system that that Washington has, uh, has adopted uh, means that they're aligned, obviously, with the Gulf monarchies and they've created this security order in the Gulf that excludes the, the region's biggest state and biggest military power. Um, that, to me, seems a little more unsustainable, actually, that, that uh, to, to keep Iran... In the cold, uh, doesn't really seem uh, like a policy that's that's destined for a lot of uh, success in the future, and I think that's what China's done. You know, with these uh, partnerships rather than alliances, they focus on areas of cooperation. Um, they there are issues of, of um, where their their interests don't align, but they kind of uh, don't focus on that. They just focus on ways to cooperate, and they find ways to develop stronger ties, mostly economic. Mostly trade or investment, and they've developed this kind of uh, stronger presence on both sides of the Gulf. And I don't think they're ever really going to forsake that. I think they're going to. I think the way they see it, and this might be maybe uh, a bit uh, naive, but the way Chinese leaders tend to talk about Middle East development is not through security, but through develop or sorry, security, not through military um, means, but through development. And through economic means. And I think the view is that the deeper economically they get in the Gulf and the stronger ties they create through this Belt and Road, um, the less pressing those um, security concerns are going to be. So, um, kind of meandering here, but I think the way they see it is that eventually Iran is going to be a, a pretty important part of the Gulf order. And they want to be in a position where they can maintain relations on both sides, kind of like with the Qatar dispute?
0: The problem, of course, is that in many ways, Iran is a much more attractive partner in the Belt and Road than Saudi Arabia is. And, you know, particularly in the era of uh, the Crown Prince, Mohammed bin Salman, uh, Saudi Arabia is going to have to balance some very contradictory policy goals. And and the question is if Mohammed really sees Iran as an existential threat uh, and is, um, you know, bent on ensuring that U.S. sanctions against Iran are effective and work, then China's sort of remaining aloof of this almost becomes unsustainable.
1: Sure, um, I think you, you hit on an important point. the The political situation in in Saudi, I think, has got to be a little worrying. Excuse me for for China, just because um, you know it, it it looks at times to be very unstable, and I think that's why we're seeing the UAE kind of becoming a bigger focus of of China's um, GCC uh, policy. I think. I think the Gulf is the, the central pillar of China's Middle East policy, and I think the UAE is probably the pillar of, of the Gulf. Um, you're right. Iran is very attractive just because it's a natural endpoint point uh, with this Belt and Road. There's that connectivity, and, and it's, it's very easy to line up with a lot of other things they're doing. Um, and, and Saudi, just because it looks unstable politically, um, it might not be the best place to uh, to invest heavily. Um, and it's interesting because I, I was looking at trade stats last week, and for the first time ever, uh, the UAE has become China's biggest trading partner in the Middle East. It, it it overtook Saudi last year. and We hadn't seen that before. And I think we're seeing more and more. I mean, they've already got a very big physical presence in the Emirates compared to Saudi. There's a lot more Chinese nationals in Dubai and Abu Dhabi than you, than you see in Saudi, and a lot more companies setting up their headquarters. So I think probably what we're seeing is is kind of this UAE on the one side as, as, as where they're kind of planting their flag on one side of the Gulf. And in Iran, I don't think that's going anywhere. I've talked to, to Emirati academics and officials and, and diplomats, and they realize that the China-Iran relationship is very important, and they don't really have enough to offer to make it um, go away completely. I think they just want to make sure that they, they stay attractive enough to Chinese uh, officials that they,
0: they can they can maintain that relationship and develop it a little more. I mean, the problem being, of course, that uh, the UAE may be a bit more pragmatic about Iran than, than the Saudis, at least under the current uh, government, uh, are likely to be. But also more, much more fundamental issues. Iran is important in terms of connectivity to Europe, which uh, Saudi Arabia is not. Uh, Iran has, a, you know, from, leaves now sanctions aside, a far more... A, a far more uh, educated population a far larger population um a much bigger domestic market uh has a historic relationship with with Iran and both oh, sorry with China and both China and Iran in many ways view themselves as almost former empires at two at the bookends of of the asian continent you know so so fundamentally if you you know you put these that comparison on paper and looked at it, it's, it's almost a hands down decision if you're forced to make a decision.
1: It is, but one way I kind of look at it is if you look at you know Iran as a as a single state, and you're right with all those kind of they see themselves as these civilizational states with these you know thousands of years of history and an empire and and Silk Road connections, and and that certainly isn't the case with China and, and the uh, Arabian Peninsula, although. Uh, Oman has has quite a long history with with uh, China, but if you look at it collectively, I mean the the value of trade between Iran versus collectively all the GCC states, um, it's not even close. You know the the, the Gulf monarchies dwarf uh, the amount of trade that China does with Iran, and you know um, they they also give China access to to the Arab world in a bigger way that Iran can't really. You know, Iran has has connections through the Middle East through these non-state actors, but but you know Saudi and the UAE especially have have you know all of these um, close relations with with Egypt and Jordan and, and and Palestine and all these other states that you know those close relations. If China pursues that, uh, it kind of opens the door a little more as well. So that's one thing Iran can offer. But you're right, the the China Iran relations are, are have have been longstanding, um, very important set of
0: relationships. You know, in strategic terms, your book sort of seeks to explain why China is interested in the Gulf and why the Gulf is interested in China. And obviously, there are the economic relationships, there are the changes in the energy market um, with the United States becoming more or less self-sufficient in terms of oil and gas production and therefore, and China (coughs) rising as the... uh, or having risen as as the foremost uh, market uh, or alternative market for uh, for hydrocarbons from the Gulf. Uh, but beyond the, that economic relationship, which go- clearly goes beyond energy, um, is, is is the Gulf also hedging in a sense against what is increasingly to them an, an unreliable U.S. ally, or its engagement with with, with Asia? And China is specifically far more um, strategic or is it both um, and and if so again you know if it is both the, the question remains does that complicate chinese you know Chinese efforts to remain aloof to geopolitical issues and at the end of the day even more fundamentally whether China can sustain these uh, these principles that it's had for decades that underlie its foreign and defense policy of non-interference. What mm. you've really alluded to, win-win economic situations, although some people argue it's China wins twice, <laughs> and so on.
1: Win-win. Um, yeah, well, you're right. I mean, you, you, uh, as you know, all 12, because you just interviewed my my colleague and co-editor, uh, Dr. Li Chen Sim, we, we co-edited a book um, on the role of external powers in the Gulf, and what we saw was a lot of other states developing a pretty big position in the region, kind of under this umbrella of the U.S. security architecture. It's kind of a low-cost entry into the region, and we saw a lot of hedging behavior from a lot of Asian states—you know, India, Japan, South Korea, China—and um, also Western states like uh, you know France and and, and the U.K. And, um i think everybody's been developing relations on all sides of the gulf without having to to kind of pay the cost of of uh, sec- uh providing for the the security and the trade um so a lot of states have been hedging but i think the gulf states themselves have been hedging really really effectively uh you know i spoke with an emirati academic uh, a couple of months ago and it was striking because obviously the relationship with with washington is so important and everybody knows every element of, of, of what's happening in D.C. They've got these these lobbyists. And of course, the uh, the ambassadorship to Washington is, is the most important one for all these Gulf states. Um, English is the medium of instruction in all the universities. They're really oriented towards them, but they see these Asian countries as these really important rising markets and rising powers. And they want to get in on the ground floor there as well. See that as you as you mentioned as the uh, the, the energy markets, um, lots of investment going that way, lots of uh, investment from there coming into here. So they've been hedging as well. And when I asked this Emirati academic, I said, you know, my students at Zaid University, they they know Western culture, Western history, Western um, philosophy. They they've they've studied all this stuff, but they know very little about China. Um, you know, do you think that this is an important relationship? And he kind of smiled and said, well, it is an important relationship. It's good for us right now. We're in a good position. We've got the EU and and, and the U.S. on our left, and on our right, we've got India and China. So, you know, we can look either way whenever we want or whenever we need to. So there is a, an element of hedging where they, they know that by by building those relationships, deepening those relationships, they're making a very important um, option or opportunity for themselves But strategically, um, another Emirati ambassador was talking with me recently, and he said, you know, when we look at what different powers, how they envision the Gulf, um, a lot of Western powers, especially the U.S., tends to look at the Gulf as just, you know, we've always been here, we always will. There isn't really a vision of why or going forward what the relationship will be. And I think, you know, Secretary of State Pompeo's uh, speech in Cairo this weekend is is further indication that they haven't really given a lot of thought of of what it is they're doing here. Um, And he contrasted that with China's Belt and Road and said, you know, they have a very, very clear idea of how we fit into their um, relationship and their strategic priorities, and that's very attractive to realize that that we could be a part of something pretty uh, um, powerful in the future. So I think there's a strategic element as well from this side.
0: I mean, that's without question true. I mean, China has a much more strategic approach uh, in its policies than at least the Trump administration at this point does. Uh, but underlying that is almost the same question uh, as with Iran, and that it's uh, it's a very static view of, of affairs. It's sort of the assumption that nothing fundamentally will change and, uh, you know, doesn't take, at the very least, black swans into into account. So as much as one doesn't know where Saudi Saudi Arabia is going to go in terms of the importance it attributes to third parties like China uh, adhering to U.S. sanctions against Iran, um, you know if Robert Kaplan is right and the United States and China have already entered into what is a cold war and no longer uh, an attempt to seek cooperation, the question is whether you can straddle, straddle a middle ground for any extended period of time.
1: Yeah, well, that's a really good point, because no matter what angle people kind of look at this from, the U.S. is going to be an important uh, factor. You know, I was in Beijing recently, and I was talking to a, a Chinese scholar at uh, Peking University who works on golf politics. And I wanted to talk to him about this new... Uh, UAE-China relationship, the strategic partnership. And every question I asked him came back to the trade war. You know, it wasn't really, he wasn't directly talking about China's Gulf situation as, as how China's relationship with Washington affects everything they're trying to do politically. So you're right. I think, um, you know, no matter how we we look at things, the, the, U, the role of the US in this is is really central to to what China is able to accomplish and what the Gulf states try to try to do as well,
0: which which really goes back to the question of the sustainability of China's foreign and defense policy uh, uh, principles. Because basically, I mean, if you look at Chinese Middle East policy over the last years, decade, maybe more, it's essentially been one in which cooperation with the United States or some sort of understanding with the United States of policy towards the Gulf and towards the Middle East at large uh, was a key element of that and increasingly of course with where the Middle East is going uh, whether it's the Saudi Iranian crisis, the crisis in Yemen, the killing of Jamal Khashoggi all of these different things Uh, It seems to me that it's going to become increasingly difficult for the Chinese to maintain this.
1: Yeah, well, I think, again, coming at this from an IR perspective, uh, you know, uh, Obama, President Obama gave a a pretty famous speech with Tom Friedman, I think in 2015 or 16, where he, you know, said China's a free rider. And uh, China's been um, free riding in the Gulf. And other people have said, and you just kind of alluded to, it kind of been bandwagoning, uh, looking at, following along with U.S. policies to to continue to derive benefits. And the way I kind of look at it is is more from this hedging perspective that they're, you know, a, a good hedger is going to develop those economic ties and slowly build up capabilities to the point where if something does happen, they're positioned and. You know, they, they haven't been doing that militarily because they haven't had to. But the base in Gwadar in Pakistan and the base in Djibouti indicates that might be coming. Um, the base in Dukum in Oman, not the base, the port rather, that, that Chinese firms from uh, Ningxia have been developing to the tune of something like $11 billion, uh, this is going to have uh, military or naval capacity because uh, when Prime Minister Modi visited Muscat last year, they, they signed an agreement to, to use Dukum for i think uh refueling and replenishment and and uh uh repair for the chinese or the indian navy rather so they're slowly building up kind of uh and quietly building up these capabilities that indicate that they're not going to keep hedging forever that eventually if if the us slips or if if um you know the situation calls for it to china, for china to protect its interests in a more proactive way that the capacity might be there. Now I, I don't see this happening anytime soon. I don't think. Why would anybody want to uh, um, destabilize this? This essentially really good deal that they have right now. But I think, given you know what you described, this this very kind of uh, cold war mentality of of, of this uh, bilateral China U.S. relationship right now, they have to be looking to the future and thinking, well, the energy and the investment and the The expatriate population and the business communities that we have in these countries is important. We have to protect it. And uh, there could be a point where they are a little more assertive in in, uh, managing their own interests in the region.
0: You know, in a sense, you're alluding, in my mind, at least to several things. One is, this could come sooner than later if you get a Cold War, because if you get a Cold War, and competitive cooperation no longer is the principle, is you know, your enemy in the Cold War, the one you want to rely on for the security of your energy uh, supplies. And so it strikes me that the Chinese could be confronted with that decision much earlier. And, you know, your reference to Guadar also leads you into, if the Saudis and the Americans, for that matter, step up their their efforts to change things in Iran, by trying to destabilize the regime, and then Guadar comes into play very centrally. Mm-hmm. One because of uh, the Iranian port of Chabahar, which sure. the Saudis have already indicated uh, identified as a threat, but also because Balochistan, which is home to the port of Guadar, becomes a launching pad for for insurgency and 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 and, and, uh, and, and efforts to destabilize. And, there, and then China really doesn't have a lot of choices left.
1: Absolutely. And, and it gets really messy very quickly because you mentioned Shabahar. And of course, India has been investing heavily there. And you mentioned Balochistan, which, you know, there have been rumors that Saudi had uh, been involved in destabilization campaigns there to, to directed towards Tehran. So, you know, all of this stuff gets very, very messy quickly. And there's so many different balls in the air. Um, and again, a, a lot of it comes back to uh, what the U.S. wants to do, this, this Indo-Pacific strategy and the national defense um, document that the Trump White House released in December 2017, I think. You know, this was a very it, – it reads like a containment document, like containing China. And it, it it seems, you know, the the Indo-Pacific as the other quad states and the Obama administration had had kind of envisioned it was this – um, socialization mechanism to 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 uh, you know build up this liberal rules based order in the Indo Pacific, um, but the way that the Trump administration has described it has been has been much more aggressive and it's been targeting China. Um, it mentions the Belt and Road as a threat to a lot of uh, American allies, and so you can see how a lot of regional states might have to pick you know uh, um, do they want to get involved in this? And we've seen you know with the quad for example uh, india doesn't seem to really have an interest in in poking beijing to to make washington happy so there could be a lot of really interesting geopolitics getting back to to kaplan here um taking place and the gulf could could easily become a theater of this you know you can see how this competition across the indo-pacific is going to have these different pressure points and uh the arabian peninsula with both of those uh choke points for energy and 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 all of the uh FDI going both ways, it could really be an important uh, theater of this competition.
0: You've, um, we've talked a lot about Saudi Arabia and and the UAE. You've opted in the book to to use three case studies, uh, Oman being beyond Saudi Arabia and the UAE, the third one. Uh, uh, Can you explain why you chose those three, particularly Oman, and where you see the similarities and the differences.
1: Well, those three that's 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 a really good question. I mean, initially I was hoping to do, you know, all of the Gulf states and it just it was clear that to to kind of theoretically look at it the way I wanted to, I couldn't. Um so I had to kind of pick and choose and Saudi of course just because um it is, you know, probably the most important Arab state right now, and in, in a lot for, in a lot of ways, where you know I think Egypt always was in the past, you know Saudi with its its role in energy markets and its geostrategic importance, you know uh, bordering all those different Arab states and the Red Sea and the Persian Gulf and the, you know it's it's very important geopolitically and of its role in Islam, which for China of course is very important. You know something like twenty two million Muslims in, in China, uh, the relationship with with Saudi. Uh, can be very important in in managing China's pretty difficult relationship with its Muslim population. Um, so that was the uh, the reasoning behind Saudi for the UAE. Just because the UAE was very interesting when you look at the trade relations of of the GCC states with China, the, the imbalance almost always favors the Gulf, you know, because the value of energy exports has been so much greater than the value of what they export to China, and that's not the case with two Bahrain, which exports almost nothing to China, and the UAE, which exports a lot to China, um, but imports a, a, a whole lot more. You know, uh, the, the China-UAE trade relationship is very peculiar uh, when you look at the GCC states because they they import so much more from China than they export to it. So this relationship uh, from a, from an economic perspective is pretty interesting. You know, you can see the, um, um, the UAE's re-export model as uh, uh China's a pretty important factor in that. Um, there's a lot of more Chinese companies and Chinese nationals in the UAE than any other Gulf state. And uh, yeah, they have just much a much bigger physical presence. So I thought that was kind of an interesting reason to look at that. In Oman, just because, I mean, the history is so cool between Oman and China. You know, China was supporting this rebellion in the Dofari province back in the late 60s, early 70s um trying to undermine the Omani uh sultanate to, to overthrow monarchy with the goal of eventually overthrowing all of the gulf monarchies and creating these uh you know communist um, republics um and when sultan Qaboos came into power in 71 that started to shift and it eventually became you know very relatively quickly a pretty important uh partner with China in the in the region you know Oman diplomatically punches above its weight across a lot of pretty important issues, so from a foreign policy perspective, I thought Oman was pretty interesting, and from a strategic perspective, I thought it was really cool as well because you know that long coastline means that they can actually uh get around the uh choke point of the Hormuz straits that they have these these ports that give them uh access to to uh, energy that they don't have to worry. You know the threat, whether or not it would ever happen, of of Iran closing the straits. Well, Oman gives them an opportunity to forego that. So, you know, it was pretty imp- interesting to me, diplomatically, historically, and strategically. I thought um, with Bahrain, there was it was the, the issue was that there wasn't really as much history or or um, trade. the The data didn't really there wasn't really. it was going to be an issue of data collection. There wasn't really enough about Bahrain to really warrant uh, a a standalone case study. Kuwait and Qatar, I mean, they would be really interesting, and I hope I'm, I'm planning another kind of bigger project. And I'd like to delve more more into those two. Um, Kuwait, just because they were the first Gulf state to uh, diplomatically recognize China, they've been working pretty closely on this um, Silk Road or New Silk City, Marinat um, uh, Al Harir and Kuwait, with a lot of Chinese FDI going into this, uh, linking it to the, the Belt and Road. So it's it's a, it's also a pretty important relationship, but I, I felt that the other three were, were a little more um, just more interesting, I think, across a, a range of issues. I want <clears throat> sorry,
0: I, I want to come back to some of the points you just made, but let first let's go back to Oman for a second, and you've described part of the importance of Oman in terms of its ports of Sohar, Salalah, Tukun, Uh, which really links into the maritime component of the Belt and Road Initiative. And it Mm -hmm. struck me that, and and of course, um, um, China's been very active in ports in in the UAE with Jebel Ali and so on. But it, it, it struck me sort of as interesting that within that Chinese port strategy, Saudi ports like Jeddah don't seem to have really played an important role
1: yeah, they seem to be working more on, on energy issues with Saudi. Um, you know, there's been Saudis looking at building these nuclear reactors and excuse me, Chinese firms have been pretty active in working towards that and and using nuclear energy, uh, to, to, uh, you know, power their desalination plants and, um, you know, obviously the Aramco, um, IPO that may or may not happen. Chinese firms look pretty uh, keen to get in on, on that. But you're right in terms of they, – they've also built this um, uh, refinery in Yanbu. They've, they, so it's more, I guess, more energy-focused infrastructure, although they did build the uh, Mecca, Medina, Jeddah high-speed railroad, which was a, a pretty important uh, prestige project for Chinese firms. But in terms of ports, yeah, Dukum, uh Kizad, and Abu Dhabi, the Khalifa um, – and Jabla Ali seemed to be the big story for, for what China's trying to do.
0: It's sort of interesting that Saudi Arabia hasn't wanted to have a port of that status versus the Chinese. Uh, and, and yeah, there's of course Yanbu. But the other significance of Jeddah is of course the religious significance as being the, the entry point to Mecca, which again, given China's focus on religion at the moment, including Islam, one would think that the Chinese would have, want to have some influence there
1: yeah um you would and and I really don't know what the issue is if it's on Saudi side or whether it's on
0: china's side let me Let me come back to some of the other issues that you've raised uh, you know you rightfully so uh, noted that China views the Gulf as a sort of a stable sub subsection. Of a volatile region, although one could argue that increasingly that may be a wrong premise, and that um, and that and at the same time, of course, in terms of importance, uh, the Gulf states' ability to sort of set the international oil market and, and 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 manipulate oil prices and and supply and demand increasingly is no longer a given. So the question is, in a sense. Um, from that perspective uh who needs more whom does china need the gulf more does the gulf need china more
1: yeah well it's a, a fair point i think it's it's i think it's somewhat balanced and and you're right when you talk about the relative stability it it's really funny to describe the gulf as a stable subregion given you know the three major wars that they've had in the past 30 odd years um but i guess when i look at you know, a lot of indicators for the rest of the Middle East, you know, like the PPP or GDP per capita or, you know, uh, median age and, and, and population growth and all these things. It really is a, a pretty stable hub, at least in the Arab world. And, you know, the, the threat of the constant threat mm-hmm. of, you know, something happening with Iran, I guess just that U.S. security umbrella makes it, yeah. you know, a, a Somewhat stable region, um, and I think you look at it. You know that 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 big contract with China signed with Russia for for um, its its oil and gas that whatever it was a twenty year, multi billion dollar uh, agreement signed I believe maybe three or four years ago, and China's presence in places like Africa and, and you know there are there are other ways to get a lot of what they get from the Gulf, but again the um, just the. I think a lot of folks in the Gulf, when they look at it historically, it's always been a hub, you know, across different empires or a lot of different civilizations. And, and to get anywhere, you've got to pass through the Arabian Peninsula or pass through the Gulf. And the, the geography is not going to change. It's always going to be a pretty important meeting point. And, uh, you know, what even if they don't need to exp- import any more Gulf energy, they're still going to want to use it. Uh, their infrastructure for uh connectivity their their airlines their their ports uh connecting to south asia central asia east africa um they're really well positioned to take advantage of whatever great power wants you know to implement some great uh, new initiative and right now china's the one with the the big new initiative
0: and and i think that's kind of the the story that's probably certainly true from the gulf's perspective from the, Ch- the chinese perspective there's of course on the one hand, the, the sustainability of and the security of uh, the flow of energy, but also they have an interest in what oil prices do uh, and what supply and demand does. And there, the, it seems to me that the Gulf's influence is reduced, and 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 that there are other, you know, and that the Gulf through o, through OPEC needs to be uh, aligning itself with non OPEC producers. Uh, which also means for China that it needs to ensure that it has those pe- those produ- those uh, producers on board.
1: Sure, that's a really good point. I mean, we've seen this with the reports in the past week of Saudi wanting to reduce production to try to drive prices up because obviously they, they, they like oil at $80 barrels to cover their federal budget. And um, so that that seems to fundamentally put them at odds with, with China, right? That uh, China would like to see given the the tremendous um, volume of of imports, they'd like a, a say in the price. Um, and it's interesting. That brings brings me back to the kind of IR perspective. Uh, when we talk about the stability of the region or, or this idea of free riding or, or bandwagoning. Um I, I spoke with a Chinese scholar who is really adamant that China's not doing either, that that China's paying a a huge premium in its oil imports because of US mismanagement of the region or US uh, adventurism you know those incredible oil prices from last decade as a result of the Iraq war had a big effect on on China's economy so um you're right i think they'd like to see like to have a, a bigger say in how the the markets work given their their importance as a, a export
0: destination we you know we've talked a lot about uh from a Chinese perspective, but also more generally, Saudi Arabia being the key state, and we've talked about you know, the balancing act given Saudi-Iranian relations. There is, of course, one other state that is probably as powerful as as um, as Iran is, minus the the energy uh, reserves, and that's Turkey. And 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 the Saudi-Turkey rela- relationship is, of course. Under stress, certainly since uh, since the killing of Jamal Khashoggi in October of last year, but mm. also because of Turkey's own ambitions.
1: Yeah, I mean that's that's interesting. I, I'm certainly no expert on on Turkish domestic or international politics, but it's it's a really important um, thing to look at in the Gulf because obviously they 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 they're kind of projecting themselves as a, a leading a leading role in the Middle East. Um, and that's brought them at odds with the UAE and and Saudi in particular. Um, and it's it's interesting looking at the Chinese angle because you know that China's Central West Asia economic corridor um, brings them right in through Turkey um as an endpoint in giving them access to you know Piraeus port in Greece and, and all of what they're trying to do in Southern Europe. So um, that's an important relationship for China, but it's not really an un- uncomplicated one, just because of the, you know, the situation with the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, where ethnic Turkic people, and and uh, that relationship, I think, has been under some strain because of this as well. So there's just so much that goes into that uh, China-Turkey and, and Turkey-Gulf set of relations that that really complicates things, um, and also the fact that Turkey is a uh, is um, both a NATO member, but is considering uh, or is being considered as a future Shanghai cooperation organization member. Um, that would bring them into uh, um, a lot closer contact with China on security issues, which you think would probably um, not be looked at very favorable in the Gulf. So there's, there's so much going on with all of these relationships. There's, it's really tough to keep all those balls in the air. Um, before
0: I come back to the Uyghurs for a second, um you actually raised an interesting point with the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, where you have a situation where Iran is an observer, whereas none of the Gulf states have that status. And there's always been this question of Iran becoming a member of the um, of the SCO of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. And my sense has been that one reason why it hasn't become a member is not only Iran's international status particularly versus the United States, but also, if it were a member, it could actually veto any attempt by Saudi Arabia, for example, to become a member. Yeah, this to me is a really,
1: really... I, I wrote a short piece for the monkey cage a couple of years ago about what would happen, you know, when when Pakistan and India were made full members. I thought, well, this is this is really interesting because this kind of opens the door for bringing other um, regional competitors into the fold. And with Iran's status, it made me think: well, if, if Iran gets if Iran gets in, then of course I, I would expect the UAE and Saudi to to want to as well. Um, and there's a whole lot of factors, I guess, that come into play there. One of them being that. Um, like you say, when they, they always said Iran can't because it's, it was under these international sanctions. And the deal was when the sanctions were gone, then, then the path to membership was open. But I really don't think that China wants to antagonize Washington. And bringing Iran into the fold would, uh, would certainly do that. So I think as long as, as the relationship between Iran and, and the U.S. remains as contentious as it is right now, then there's not going to be a lot of uh, interest in Beijing to, to kind of poke the U.S. in the eye. Um, for the Gulf states, I think, I mean, just looking at it neutrally would make a lot of sense. You know, this is uh, um, a lot of their, a uh, lot of uh, states that they invest in, a lot of states they export to, a lot of pretty important countries are part of the SCO, or, or uh, you know, so they would want a, a say in in trying to shape the agenda. But at the same time, they're so reliant on the U.S. Uh, security umbrella. And uh, you know, Washington I think sees the, the SCO as, uh, as as quite an affront or a future competitor. So I think they'd have to take that into, into consideration as well. Um, is it worth antagonizing the US to uh to to take part of this um relation or this organization that really hasn't achieved a whole lot, you know, that they can hang their hats on right now. So, you know, it might be good for the status, but it could cause more problems than it than it uh, solves.
0: Uh, you noted that you know the Saudi religious establishment, as, as much of the Muslim world for that matter, has uh, refrained from denouncing the, the Chinese crackdown on the Turkic Muslims in Xinjiang. Uh, on the other hand, the, the um, you know the Saudis project themselves as a leader, if not the leader of the Muslim world, and the custodians of the holy cities, Mecca, Medina, and you're seeing. Uh, a slow but gradual break in that front of silence towards what's happening in Xinjiang and increasingly now in Ninja with the way Muslims, uh, and again also with other religious groups, Christians and so on. And the question is, as that front of silence breaks, and if uh, Western nations uh, not only keep up their criticism of what's happening in Xinjiang, but but may even go take take some sort of retaliatory action. How long Saudi Arabia can maintain that? On the one hand, on the other hand, you could argue that by remaining silent, countries like Saudi Arabia uh, have a lot of leverage with China because China de- depends on that uh, uh, on that uh, uh, on that silence. But if you get that that continued buildup of criticism, that becomes, I would think, also domestically in a country like Saudi Arabia, uh, a very tricky issue.
1: It is tricky, but I think this is a case where state interests kind of trump um, kind of the ideational or or religious or ideological concerns. Um, The way, and I don't agree with this, but I'm I'm no expert on Xinjiang, so I'm I'm just talking kind of as a as a layperson here. But um, the way China frames the situation in Xinjiang is, um, you know, uh, a response to uh, instability and and a group that wants to separate, and uh, you know, one of the three evils of what splitism and you know they, they they frame it in such a way that makes it easier for countries like, you know. Pakistan or the UAE or Saudi to say, yeah, they're dealing with a domestic political situation. Um, A lot of these countries have their own um, problems with political Islam. And as long as China's able to frame it that way, then I think it's easier. It gives them a a kind of an out to not have to uh, condemn it. Excuse me. And uh, again, it's not that I I see it that way. It's just that's the way it's being described. And I think um, a lot of Leaders in Gulf states would say, "Well, yeah. If you look at you know Daesh or, or, or you know the Muslim Brotherhood or these other political Islamist movements, uh, these have been pretty big uh, domestic problems uh, for for them. And if China says Xinjiang is the same for, them, for for China, then then it makes it a little easier for them to to kind of navigate that that question." Um, the other issue, I think, is just that, you know, the China's non-interference in the domestic politics of its allies or its partner states, you know, from those five principles of peaceful cooperation, that's appreciated in the region. You know, China tends to work with, with states and, and and not support um, groups that threaten state security or state stability. And those states, especially after 2011, appreciated it. It was kind of a, a, a interesting counterpoint from the U.S. supporting protesters in a lot of countries and countries what China saw as creating instability. So I think that all comes, you know, it's all bound together in this stuff. Also the fact that, you know, after Tiananmen, uh, there weren't too many states where China could go and and receive a state visit, but the Gulf was, was one set of countries where they could. The Chinese president, Yang Shengkun came to Oman and the UAE, Qatar and and, and Egypt and was received uh, very spectacularly. Um, That certainly wasn't going to happen in too many other places. So, I think they're able to kind of look at state stability and, and religious freedom as maybe different sides of the same coin.
0: Jonathan, you and I could go on for hours about this, but (laughs) unfortunately we're coming slowly to the end of this. Uh, but before I let you go, perhaps you can talk a little bit about where you're going from here, uh, in terms of your research and projects.
1: Sure. I mean, this book was kind of like step one. There's so much to to look at with China and the Gulf and China and the Middle East. Um, one thing I'm working on, I've got a, an edited book that I'm putting together uh, called uh, Regions and the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, I've got a really great team of of scholars uh, with regional expertise. And the idea is what happens when China, through its Belt and Road Initiative, uh, Kind of gets inserted into these regional security complexes where they haven't traditionally always played a, a very big role. You know, are they going to kind of get uh, sucked into this vortex of of regional security concerns, or are they going to be able to maintain their uh, you know business first uh, approach? So that's one thing I'm working on. But I guess the bigger project is just looking at um, how the Belt and Road is is being implemented in the Middle East. Um, this idea of of, uh, Asian states coming into the Gulf and and how this might affect the security landscape or the uh, business landscape or the economic one. Um, Is there going to be kind of a a greater emphasis on on East Asia or South Asia in general? I guess just Asia in general rather than the West, which is what we've always kind of seen in the Gulf. This is the kind of stuff I want to look at for the
0: next couple of years. It sounds to me like you've got your uh, research cut out for you full plate with with more than one great project thank you for being on the show today i really enjoyed it and wish you all the best cheers james and
1: thanks this is a really great podcast really enjoy it